Hello, this is Brian Kaplan speaking to you from the Salem Center at the University of Texas in beautiful, sunny, and almost mask-free Austin. Today, we have a very special guest, the great Richard Hania of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Mm-hmm. is right here with me in Austin. Uh, Richard is stunned by the lack of mask wearing because normally he is hanging his hat in oppressive California, but right now he is breathing the free Texas air, which is a great place for us to have our podcast, uh, which will begin with... Well, we're actually going to begin with a little bit on Richard Hania's biography. You may not yet know him, but if you don't, after today you will, and you're going to be hearing his name a lot in coming years. It's the general insider consensus. All right, but he also has a brand new book out, his first book, which is called Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. But why don't we just go right into it? Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Glad to be here. Thanks, Brian. Richard, you have had a remarkable path in life. From what I have heard, you were a high school dropout. How did you get from there to where you are today? Um, I mean, it's it's not that remarkable. You make it sound, you know, the, it's not like it's that exciting. I mean, I was a bad high school student. I didn't like school very much. Um, I dropped out of high school. I went to community college um, for a few years, transferred to a real college, and then uh, did graduate school. So it's, it's really, the, 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 path is, the path is there. It's just, I don't, you know, I don't, th- I don't think it's actually unusual as people think, because there was a high school dropout, a guy who ended up going to Yale as an undergrad. I remember he wrote a book on the experience. Um, so maybe it is rare because he wrote a book, but at least one other yeah. person has, has gone to, you know, some kind of elite uh, institution from being a high school dropout. Somebody told me the other day that they have a, maybe it was you, they have a, um, thing in Berkeley where they have a, uh, like a, a fellowship for uh, ex-felons. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. And, and so they have, you know, so it's, um, yeah, I didn't get in on like a felon affirmative action right. program or anything, but yeah. All <laughs> right. All right. Well, you've carved out a deeply untraditional career path for yourself, yet you still have degrees from top schools. In hindsight, have your academic credentials done anything at all for your success? Um, to have the have the credentials, I would or the you know the the studying. So, oh, yeah. so what, first, what are your credentials? Uh, so I have a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. I have a, um, a PhD in political science from UCLA, and I uh, was a fellow at Columbia for a few years. All right, and did any of that even matter for what you're doing, or could you have just fast forwarded through all of that? been an autodidact uh, and been exactly where you are today. So it's an interesting, so like what I actually learned, I mean, learning statistics was very important. I could have done that, you know, on my own. It was probably not a cost efficient way to go to graduate school to learn, you know, basic statistics that you need to do political science and, you know, uh, uh, just, you know, psychology, social science stuff that I do. Um, but I don't know. I mean, my, my, um, you know, my, uh, thing, you know, my sort of success, I think depends on getting attention, people thinking I'm smart. I mean, people like my writing and they recommend it and then other people like it and there's the social proof thing. Did I need sort of academic, you know, decent academic credentials to get my foot in the door? Um, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. So it's possible that you could have just skipped all this. It's possible I could have, yeah, done this when I was, yeah, 18 or 20, you know, if I had the emotional and maturity and, you know, intellectual development to do it. All right, so you've got a new book out on foreign policy. To repeat, the title is Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. It's available for sale on Amazon. There is an exorbitantly priced hardcover and a plausibly priced paperback, or not paperback, ebook rather, a plausibly priced ebook. So, I mean, obviously everyone's going to want the hardback, but maybe some people who are on the verge of starvation will want the ebook instead. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, and most of your early work is in foreign policy, so let's just start there. 
So your book attacks two things. First of all, the illusion of grand strategy, and secondly, the unitary actor model. So could you just start off by telling us what is the illusion of grand strategy and what is the unitary actor model? So the unitary actor model is basically the idea that you you can talk about a state like the way you talk about an individual. You know, individuals have goals, they have desires, they, you know, they have preferences, they act upon them. And this is sort of the foundation of, you know, microeconomics um, and rational choice and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and so th- that, that's basically, and so basically what international relations does, you know, to simplify things to a large extent and historically what the field has done is that it has basically used that uh, assumption to describe states. So when one country is, um, one country is deciding what to do with another, you know, whether a sign an agreement or because France war. decided it needed colonies. Yeah, exactly. France decided at some point it needed colonies. <laughs> yes, and and the study of grand strategy is a sort of a corollary of that is that it's trying to explain, and really it's it's sort of it's, it's almost not even a real like a trying to explain. It's sort of like a normative debate actually, as much as it is trying to explain anything of what the grand strategy of any particular country is. So grand strategy is generally defined as economic, military, and diplomatic means going, going towards accomplishing the same goals. If you have the if you have that, you have a grand strategy. If you don't have that, um, you don't have a grand strategy. Because I don't believe in the unitary actor model, which the theory of grand strategy depends on. Um, um, I'm skeptical of grand strategy as a concept itself. Hmm. Now, it seems to me that you could look at one individual and say, well, that guy, he's a unitary actor, but he does not have a grand strategy. In fact, I'd say that describes almost all human beings. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we could do the same thing for countries. So we could drop the illusion of grand strategy and say, yeah, countries don't have any big long-term plan, but still say that each U.S. president has great autonomy to pursue his personal and plausibly ill-considered foreign policy agenda. So what's wrong with that story where basically every time we get a new president, we get a new unitary actor who acts in his own confused and short-sighted ways, but he still is one man who has a, not a plan, but it's one person who has something he's trying to do, and then he gets out of office, and then a new guy shows up, and he's got something he's trying to do, which could be totally different for the previous guy. Yeah, so um, uh, there's two authors, uh, uh, Dustin Tingley and uh, Helen uh, Milner, who um, basically... They make this argument that the president can basically the person of the president represents basically solves the problem of having a fragmented government. Um, but they also um, they make the argument, and I think this is right, that because the uh, president has um, uh, most control over the military compared to everything else, that leads to a highly militarized American foreign policy. Um, and so, I you know, I, the, you're, yeah, that that is true. That the president has you know a lot of discretion in um, military affairs, even when he really you know wants to do something. Uh, the sanctions regime gives him a lot of uh, gives him a lot of ability to to basically sanction. So you have the, dip, the diplomatic part, you have the economic part, you have the um, uh, military part. But uh, besides, with the mostly with the exception of the military part, where Congress really usually doesn't push back, um, you know, other interest groups have a you know a big role to play, and they have a role to play in Congress. And the executive branch itself, one thing I point out in the book, um, is itself its own interest group because what presidents do often depends on what information they receive. Um, what incentives the bureaucracy is creating for them, you know, things like damaging leaks or like, you know, presenting selective information, but then presenting selective information uh, to the general public. Um, so if you actually study, you know, there's no reason you, you might not think, you know, intuitively that this stuff would be very important. But when you study actual instances of American foreign policy, you do see that 
influence, like why Obama escalated in Afghanistan, why Trump escalated in Afghanistan. It was the same story. It was overwhelming pressure um, from the Pentagon, from the generals, from the people in the government. Um, so yeah, you you know you you can you know get so, get something closer to a strategy. I don't know about grand strategy, right? Something that mm-hmm. you know explains how the U.S. interacts with the world. Um, but there's still interest groups. There's still a lot you know going on. Hmm. I mean. Perhaps we could say that the kind of person who becomes president is not someone who's going to keep his own counsel. If you put, imagine putting a randomly selected person in the presidency, you might get someone like you. And the Pentagon would say, we desperately have to do this, President Hinenya, yeah. or Hinenya, President Hinenya. And then you say, no, we're not. Right. Yeah. Stand down. Yeah. And then... Maybe what you say happens, but the kind yeah. of person that would actually, that actually gets the job in the real world is not someone of such steely fiber. I w- think, could that be the story? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely part of the story. I mean, the, there's a selection process where you get to, um, you know, before somebody gets to being president, and what, what are you selecting for? You're selecting for people, not people who have grand strategies or people necessarily who have ideological, strong ideological commitments where they would, they can, uh, you know, they can take advantage of the power that they technically have, right? They, so, you know, there's certain, you know, it's, uh, it's, often a matter of will. And um, yeah, that's not what we select for in our political system. We select for people who are good at politics. And what does being good at politics mean? I mean, it means going along with powerful mm-hmm. interest groups. Go along to get along. Yeah. So the, the president's power is in theory, um, you know, nearly unlimited in foreign policy. In, in practice, um, it, it tends to be a lot more restricted. And, and Trump was such an interesting case because he's so, I think, psychologically and, you know, psychologically different and his background was very different um, from other um, presidents but actually ended up having a pretty conventional Republican foreign policy, despite some weird eccentricities. Um, So yeah, that probably helps the theory that even Trump had to sort of be like a politician to succeed in politics. So in your book, you consistently describe voters as rationally ignorant and especially rationally ignorant about foreign policy. Now, I actually have a book that you cite (laughs) several times. Thank you very much. Uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies. And this book argues that you're overly optimistic because I say voters are worse than ignorant. Sure, they're ignorant, but they're also deeply irrational. Uh, Do you disagree that voters are irrational? And do you need voter rationality to make your story work? Well, rash, uh, well, I mean, I think that I, I think I agree with uh, the, your book, but they're rational in the sense that they're doing what makes sense for themselves, which is to be irrational, right? There's epistemic yeah. rationality, and then you could say there's instrumental rationality. Okay, so, so it's, that's instrumental. Yes. They're instrumentally yeah. rational and epistemologically irrational. Right. Like, for example, in the book, you talk about how voters' rational ignorance means that when there's classified information, they really have no choice but to trust the government. And the rational actor approach would say, well, wait a second. I have a choice. If you say, sorry, I can't tell you that's classified, a person could say, well, if it's classified, then I don't believe you. And yeah. like, if you won't share the information, then I'm not going to support you. Either put up or shut up. Yeah, I hope I didn't give that impression of the book, because I don't, I don't think it's, uh, yeah, that, that would be mm-hmm. giving too much credit to epistemological rationality of the of the voter mm-hmm. um so no I, I don't believe that i think i think it's more it's more like yours it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah, a, so the voters are gullible it's not just it's gull- poor, you know, poor it's, me i don't have the information it's but, gullible, but they also yeah. want they also want to i mean it's like you know they also you know they they one of the most consistent things about voters is they dislike foreigners or they dislike foreigners relative to, you know, people in their own country. So, you know, what are you doing in foreign policy when you're trying to push sort of a more, uh, in a more militarist or, you know, trying to sanction somebody, militarist direction or trying to sanction somebody, you know, you're trying to get them to think bad things about foreigners and, you know, you're not, you're not going against the grain there. I mean, you're, you're basically playing to their tendencies. Hmm. 
So for me, maybe those eye-opening chapter in the book was your chapter on sanctions. And what's striking is that you mentioned that people think of sanctions as doing nothing. And that was definitely kind of where I was when I started. Saying, oh, yeah, there's these sanctions. I never really thought about them. But you argue that actually sanctions over the long run can do more damage than a war and definitely kill a lot more people. Yeah. So could you just give us the, a, quick, so a, quick, a quick introduction to what is it that we ought to know about sanctions that hardly anybody does? Uh, so sanctions run the gauntlet from basically just shutting down a country from the global economy, which means no American can do business with them. No foreigner can do business with them without being shut out of the American economy, mm-hmm. too. So you're basically shutting them out from the global economy. So, um, you know, like there's a, you know, like, so the most extreme cases are like North Korea, Syria, um, now Venezuela. Um, and basically, you know, I mean, it's really amazing. Like banks will want to have nothing to do with anybody. So, the, you know, there, there's reports of people working for international organizations because it's like called the Syrian Relief Fund or something because they have Syrian in their name. They can't open bank accounts, right? It's that extreme. So you can imagine what the people in, uh, in Syria are going through. And, and this applies to everything. Now they say there are, um, they say there are humanitarian exceptions, which means mm-hmm. like, okay, like you can't have an economy and you can't have ec- any economic growth, but like we'll let in a little bit of charity, um, which, you know, that's, that's the, the point is the, the suppression of economic growth. It's not necessarily, you know, how much charity you provide. And often you can't even get the charity, like right now in Afghanistan, um, they can't even send the charity to the Taliban. Um, the- so, so why don't we just break it down a little bit more? So first of all, what actually do we know about what sanctions do to sanction countries? Uh, they do terrible things. You can imagine if you're cut off from the global right, economy. Right, no, we got, got some. Yeah, we got some numbers in the book. So I want numbers. Oh, okay, you want numbers. So I mean, it's, it's this. The numbers are always disputed, and they're very hard to study. And so, um, you Which, know, we can give. I can give you like a few examples. Yeah, so yeah. there was um, one example that was just. Uh, I was looking at basically the Trump. Uh, the Trump administration uh, did uh, like total sanctions on Venezuela when they tried to recognize the Guido government, and they tried to say Maduro's government is no longer legitimate. Um, in one year, this is based on surveys of people in Venezuela. Um, they calculated forty thousand excess deaths in one year. Right? Um, there was uh, there was a, there was one estimate from a, you know a, 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 a international relief organization that had North Korea, and it was looking, I think, at one disease, um, like within a like a one year period, they couldn't get some medicine or something, or yeah, one or two year period or something like that. It was a few thousand deaths in, in North Korea. Right? This is just a tiny, mm-hmm. tiny fraction of what sanctions are doing. Um, there were numbers that um, uh, that the, the Iraq sanctions in the nineteen nineties killed hundreds of thousands. Um, I think the better research came out later and showed that was exaggerated, but it's most certainly, it's probably in the tens of thousands, you know, maybe close to a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're talking, you know, serious body counts often much more than uh, what the wars cause. Right. And then effects on GDP. I remember you had at least one paper, possibly others that had estimates of that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, one or 2% per year, you know, compounding. Compounded. That's important. Could you explain compounding? Yeah. You know, compounding is, you know, like compound interest. You get 7% yes, yes. a year and then you add, and then if you take off, right, it's, it's the same thing, yes. the same concept. Um, and so, yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is, I mean, basically, if you, if you want to, you know, if you're, if you're like a humanitarian and you're looking at American foreign policy, I think you shouldn't be thinking about, uh, you shouldn't be thinking about um, providing more aid. I don't think you should be, even, even the wars are not the main priority here. The main priority should be the sanctions regime. Right. So that's what sanctions do to the country that's affected. But what do sanctions accomplish according to our best understanding? 
our best understanding is they don't really accomplish much. So there was, you know, some data sets that were used to argue the sanctions could accomplish something. Um, Robert Pape at the University of Chicago, and I go into the debates here, took those apart. It's, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't trust this kind of political science where we create data sets and we say, what are the intentions and what are the causes between this and that? I think that's, you know, that's sort of a, um, I think that's sort of a, you know, a scientism more than it is science. But I mean, the, the burden is on those who want to who destroy the economy of nations and killed you know, tens of thousands of people. And we don't really have strong evidence that, that sanctions work. Um, and is there really any example of sanctions actually causing the local population to rise up in rebellion and overthrow the government? N- not that extreme, no. Yes. Like that's, yeah, yes. so that's even, even often, although that's often the official rationale, right? That is, yeah, that's the, that's the official rationale or you know, semi-official rationale. So you could point to like Myanmar um, where they basically, they uh, democratize for a short period of time. And you know, the, the, the people will say that's because of you know, the sanctions, you know, who knows? It's hard to determine these things. Iran, you know, negotiating the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, you know, people say that that's sanctions, but you know, we, we pulled out of that. <laughs> so you see, you see, you see sort of the irrationality in these, in these policies. Like it doesn't, it didn't work in Myanmar in the long run and Iran, we, we pulled out, uh, out of the deal anyway. Um, and so there's, yeah, very, very few examples of this. I mean, there's like, you know, there, it's like, there's also like, if the idea is that they'll be so poor that they'll get desperate and the government will lose its legitimacy. There's also like an idea that when they want to just other things are doing in foreign policy that as countries get richer, they overthrow the government and become democratic. So it seems like you know they grab whatever theory they can. Overthrow or just get soft. Uh, well, the, the idea that you know the, the sort of modernization theory is mm-hmm. that uh, people get wealthier and then eventually you democratize, right? Right, but that could come from the leaders to say, "All right, well, we're rich. We're yeah, not. We're, we're, we're not, not, not going to massacre and whatever people form, anymore. Whatever form, whatever form regime change takes, right? Whether they, yeah, it's uh, pressure from below or top or you know whatever. But 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 in, in the modernization theory, I mean, they, they put a, a, a central role for uh, for the people and pressure from from below. Um, so there are a lot of striking facts in public choice theory and the illusion of grand strategy. For me, the, what probably stays with the, with the most is that you confirm what I had heard a number of places, which is that for the last three major American wars, namely Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, the U.S. just really didn't have anyone in the administration whose job it was to figure out what comes after we win. To me, that would be the most minimal part of any grand strategy is, okay, well, what do we want? We want it to want the regime to be like this, so how do we get there? Well, we overthrow them. Whereas it seems more like all the brain power goes into the military conquest, and then there's no brain power left to figure out what happens. Well, and actually, I think, I think the military, and that even going on, the military, the brain power goes into selling the war. Uh, um, Right. And <laughs> well, we the, do. You know, the U.S. Yeah. does win pretty, pretty, pretty well when it when it deploys. Well, I mean, yes, uh, yeah. look at it its opponents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. That's, that's fair. So maybe yeah. it wasn't that well planned, and it's just the overwhelming superiority of force. Yeah, I think that's like so. The U.S. basically didn't have the soldiers in Iraq to secure all the WMD sites, the suspected WMD sites that they thought would be in there. Um, so I don't know how well this stuff, you know, planned. There happened not to be WMD, mm-hmm. so they got lucky there. And then, like you know, the main, like the main, you know, uh, museum of the country, which had like all these ancient artifacts facts got looted because there just wasn't enough troops to even like keep the peace like the next morning. Um, so yeah, I don't even know if the, there's a lot of effort going in. I mean, the military, they do, you know, they, they are given a mission and they can go do that. And so the, you know, there's planning there. Um, but yes, you're right. Libya, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, you know, Iraq is the most striking and it's the most important because basically there were two factions within the government, the neocons who wanted the war. These are the, you know, the Cheneys and the fights and uh, Wolfowitz. They were friend. They were basically friends with Ahmed Chalabi and the, 
you know, the, the, basically what their uh, critics say is they just wanted to give the gar- country over to Shalabi. They didn't care about democracy. You know, they thought he was a liberal guy who would do good things, but basically there was no, um, they didn't want any kind of nation building. Now, now the State Department was more skeptical of the war, but if we did go to war, they wanted to be nation building because they're, you know, liberal, good governance types. You can't just give it over to a dictator or just leave them in chaos, right? So, that they, you know, their idea was basically no war, but if war, then, you know, permanent occupation, basically, um, or enough occupation, you know, they wouldn't say that, enough occupation to, to help the government be formed. And what happened was, you'd think you'd adopt maybe one of these, and that would be a grand strategy, but it was like, Bush just, you know, decided to sort of listen to the first faction and go to war, and then, like, a month after the, a month after the war, it looked like they were going to, you know, stay with that plan and just basically give the government over to Shalabi and the, um, and the uh, other Iraqi exiles. But didn't the U.S. have to go and tell all its allies there were going to be democratic elections quite soon in order to get them on board? Um, well, I mean, they didn't get... I, I, I don't think so, no. Hmm. I don't think that was a... I mean, the, the, you could... So this, you, that, was, that was not a key part of, 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 of assembling the Coalition of the Willing, mm-hmm. was promising everyone it was gonna, there were going to be free and fair democratic elections no, I mean, ASAP? No, my, I mean, there might yeah. be... There, somebody might have said something like that at one point, but there was no... Um, you know, there was no like thinking within the, you know, I've read all the, you know, the memoirs and the reporting. There was no like mm. consideration like, oh, no, we need democracy because the polls and the, you know, the British are going to be bad because we promised them this. There doesn't seem to have been. Mm. I mean, there were really no major allies besides the British. So, I mean, the other ones were just Eastern European countries who were basically at that point happy to be friends with the U.S. and just going along with um, whatever America would do. Um, I mean, so the one that seemed craziest in the book was Libya, because yeah. here you have the case of Muammar Gaddafi, who actually, yeah. of his own free will, complies with all the requests to uh, end his WND program and to uh, help with the war on terror. And as far as I can tell, it's generally agreed that he was true to his word and did yeah. everything he was going to say. And then the U.S. goes and overthrows him anyway, which leads the North Koreans to say, well, we're never going to give you our nukes, because look at what happened to Muammar. Yeah. Does that sound... So, so you could elaborate on that. Yeah, exactly. So just to British Iraq, um, so they they uh, they overthrow the government. You know, Bush listens to the first action, but then like a month later, they, they you know everyone in the government expects that they're just going to hand it over to Shalabi. So th- they weren't you know thinking mm-hmm. about democracy. Uh, democracy, but then he has a meeting with Paul Bremer, um, who was like an old State Department guy, and he wanted the he, he is Bush. Uh, Bremer, yeah, Bremer has a meeting with Bush, yeah. and then Bush basically changes his mind and says, "Okay, you know, Bremer, you know, you you do whatever you want." Mm-hmm. And this is a month after the invasion, right? Just you know, never really he never really thought about what was going to happen. It happened through inertia, and then he just gives it to Bremer, and then you get the occupation. You get the you know the U.S. ambitiously trying to build civil society, right? I have, I, I don't know if I quoted the book, but Bremer's always like, you know, we're not going to leave until there are labor unions and women's <laughs> rights and journalism and free press and newspapers and you know, he just lists like twenty different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's I. Iraq. I mean, you, you clearly no grand strategy here. Uh, Libya, it's exactly the same. It was held up, I mean, by people who were apologists for the Bush administration. The idea was that uh, Gaddafi saw the U.S. was serious about, like, dealing with bad actors. Um, so he got rid of his WMDs. Um, you know, he has, like, dinner with Condoleezza Rice. You know, he's, like, he's, he's accepted as sort of a, you know, coming back into the uh, the, the, uh, the family of nations. The family of nations, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and like... What a family. He, and, oh, oh, and also, you know, He's, I, I don't think I talk about this much at all, but he's also um, he's also helping uh, clamp down on immigration from Africa, right? Yeah, right he's stopping right. them yeah. all, you know, the refugees, which Europeans don't want, right? So, like, from the perspective of Western countries, there's a lot, you know, to be said for Gaddafi and his regime, right? And then the uh, Arab Spring comes along, and it's basically, you know, if you look at the reporting, it's like the, the actually the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert Gates, was skeptical. Obama was sort of wavering. And then you had, like, Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice and... Uh, uh, 
um, uh, Samantha Power, who were just really into this sort of idea of global leadership and humanitarian intervention. And things were moving fast. I mean, we're talking days and weeks. And the Europeans, you know, for whatever reason, like the French particularly, um, wanted to want to do something. And yeah, I mean, there was no alternative government. I mean, there was just nothing that could potentially replace it. And so, yeah, this is uh, so. This is like you know ridiculous in the context of what the U.S. was um, you know holding up what they were pointing to Libya to supposedly prove. Um, and yeah, of course, and and then the. Um, and then from the context of just, you know, like the future of that country, I mean, there was just, there was just no, no plan or no, no, even, I don't think there was even like a theoretical way you got from like overthrowing the government to, to not having a civil war. Um, and Libya has been on in, having intermittent civil wars, you know, for the last 10 years. So yeah, it's a, it's a terrible situation. No, they did not think much about it. Right. And it also sent exactly the wrong message to every other dictator on earth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, so it's a funny, you know, it's a funny story. So the, yeah, the, the the North Korea. There's reports that yeah, North Koreans were thinking about Libya. This was um, uh, Evan Osnos, I think, in the New Yorker has reported this. And at one point, uh, John Bolton, when Trump is negotiating with um, with uh, uh, Kim Jong Un um, when Trump was president, John Bolton says, you know, we want um, we want denuclearization. We want it on the Libyan model, right? <laughs> and I I, went, I was teaching um, I was teaching some international relations class. Like, why do you think John Bolton said this? And they're, you know, they're sort of puzzled. And I think, okay, you're John Bolton. You love war. You love hawkishness, right? You're trying to sabotage. If you're trying to sabotage Trump's negotiations and make sure he's not going <laughs> to uh, make a deal with Kim Jong-un, this is, these are the exact words you would use. So that, that's my, I don't have any proof of this, but my theory is that Bolton basically wanted to throw, uh, you know, throw a wrench in Trump's plans to, to, you know, make friends with Kim Jong-un. And, you know, he probably did a good job of it. I mean, the, the, they were taken aback by that. The obvious, the, he's, he went to Yale Law School. I mean, Bolton is not an idiot. So I think he knew the implications of the Libya model. Uh, so you argue that bad U.S. foreign policy will continue until we change the incentives of interest groups. Uh, but isn't there a catch-22? So don't you really need a unitary actor or some major shift in public policy to change interest groups' incentives? Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I think I you know I, I, the last chapter is basically about how you know you can. Um, Potentially change foreign policy, right? And yeah, there, I don't. You know, if I if I was going to say like, what are the, you know, what are the odds that it's going to actually change? I don't think. I think that catch twenty two is real. I mean, I, I think that you know, mm-hmm. despite what I what I do, you know, maybe I can convince people, maybe not. I think the incentives mm-hmm. are what they are. Um, I think you know because of the ex- uh, the extent to which I put sort of emphasis on um, inertia. If you have a president who, if you do by some accident or some you know. Uh, uh, a quirk of history gets some president who is ideologically committed um, to scaling mm-hmm. back American commitments or even taking on new commitments. Whatever he does is going to be sticky because the system is, you know, very mm-hmm. based on inertia. Like we have, when we had troops in Afghanistan, the easiest thing was to keep them there. When we don't have mm-hmm. troops in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's going to dare send them back or, you know, nobody's sane, hopefully. Um, so yeah, I think, I think a historical contingency matters a lot here and the president's power, it's theoretical if it could be made real and, you know, there's no reason to rule that out. You know, you could get a major change in foreign policy. All right, Richard, uh, you run the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. What does mainstream political science get right about partisanship? 
so I think you know there's a few big findings from uh, uh, from uh, political science that basically uh, you know explain uh, are consistent with the data and explain I think are, are intuitively um, are intuitively appealing to people who just are casual observers of politics. Um, effective polarization, the idea that the parties and the you know, people of different ideologies do not like each other, and that's increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, often, you know, there the things that people say something is getting worse more often than not you know there's not a lot of evidence behind that things are just as bad or maybe they were worse in the past now this is this is worse this is like republicans don't like democrats and vice versa um much more than in the past and this is driving our politics um to to a great extent i mean i think most political scientists understand that you know they have a they have a a limited you know um limited faith in sort of the capabilities of, of voters to, you know, uh, to care and to process, um, you know, complex information. I think that's been the the standard in political science for a really long time. The, the, the ideology is sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the extent to which people have ideology, it's very flexible and can, you know, depend on uh, partisan, partisan cues and like, you know, how you phrase a question and all mm-hmm. kinds of things. So uh, Republicans I, will support price controls if Nixon does it. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of They're thing. not, you mm-hmm. know, are they probably, not, mm-hmm. you know, not abortion. Right, not abortion mm-hmm. rights. If you know, if even if Trump said it, I don't think that, you know most Republicans would support abortion rights. So there are some limits, and there are some organic you know concerns that people have. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that's you know, how about just uh, predictors of partisanship? Uh, mainstream political science get that right? Uh, predictors of part yeah. of like which side you're on? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it does. Yeah, basically, the you know the idea is Namely. that. <laughs> What's that? Namely, what are what are those predictors? Uh, race, gender, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like personality have you know a smaller mm-hmm. influence. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like uh, you know, like moral intuition. That's almost like that's almost cheating. I think looking at moral intuitions mm-hmm. because it's so closely tied to politics. I say, mm-hmm. okay, it's like you know, morals mm-hmm. predict morals. So mm-hmm. uh, that's not very impressive. But yeah, the race, gender, sexual orientation, religiosity is a huge one. I don't think people. I don't think that one is people become religious because they want to be Republican. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I, my experience with people tells me that's something innate that comes before and then mm-hmm. determines the politics later. All right. And similarly, what does mainstream political science get right about ideology? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the it's same thing. I mean, that people don't really have um, most of the time much of ide- ideology. I think at the... Um, I think at the elite level, there's there's a tendency to um, downplay it for like you know elite actors. I think ideology can be very important, but basically, I think I think that political science gets ideology right at the mass level. All right. Presumably, you would not have started your center if you thought the mainstream political science had already figured out everything important about partisanship and ideology. What are the main consensus views that you reject? Uh, so, so our um, the. Um, uh, so the name partisanship and ideology. I mean, I think our uh, our sort of mission has become much broader than that. Um, so it's like the name is, uh, you know, the name was uh, yeah, was chosen, but <laughs> but, but, we, but we, even, we even so, the name is a bit of a reproach to the existing field because you're saying yeah. that we need a whole center to advance this. Yeah, it uh, isn't set. It isn't settled. There's well, important I questions think, that we don't know, understand so I think, yet. So I think political scientists understand how partisanship works and how much it shapes the mass public. I don't think they're very self-aware of, you know, how partisanship and ideology basically shape their own way of looking at politics. Uh, so there's something, I'll give you an example. So I, I took a class at UCLA. Um, I got my PhD there in political science on political psychology. Every week was, you know, something what's wrong with Republicans, like racism and like, you know, small government, for example, racism and anti-immigration sentiment, like, uh, you know, the browning of American pressure. like, okay, there's, there's something there. I don't 
don't think that 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 stuff was necessarily wrong. Um, but you know, you can um, and you know, there's stuff on like the authoritarian personality, um, and this is supposedly mm-hmm. something right the F scale. Yourself. Yeah, and and somebody actually came along and showed that uh, you can design a scale mm-hmm. where you just change the authority figures from like cops to professors and scientists, uh-huh. and suddenly left wingers are uh-huh. more authoritarian. So why did we have that authoritarian scale? You know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. why was it applied to the right? I mean, that's obviously a partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, uh, uh, there's partisan reasons for that. Yeah, uh, there's there's actually a great paper by J.J. Ray called "The Old Fashioned Personality," yeah, where he yeah. reinterprets the entire literature on the authoritarian personality to say it's actually an old fashioned personality, uh-huh. and he uses it to explain a number of puzzling things, such as people who score high in the F scale will endorse racist views, but they are personally nice yeah. to people of the group that they say bad things about. Yeah, which is very old fashioned. Like you don't, you know, someone comes up, you offer them yeah. a glass of lemonade regardless of the race, and even like how yeah. they define like racism. So there's something called the racial resentment scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anybody's listening, go go Google racial racial resentment scale. It's basically just uh, like a Tom Sowell book. Mm-hmm. Like if you summarize a Tom Sowell book in like bullet point form, bullet point format, that's the racial resentment mm-hmm. scale. I'll say this predicts Republicanism. Yeah, no, no, no kidding. Right there, uh, <laughs> those are conservative talking points. So one thing that an academic consensus can do is actually say things that are wrong, but another thing that it can do is just fail to ask certain questions. Exactly. So yeah. what are the what are the top questions that mainstream work on partisanship and ideology is neglecting and that you over at your center are asking. Uh, so yeah, exactly. So the, um, you know, there, like every, you know, every basically every uh, the political science, and it's it's a large extent the field, and especially what gets a lot of press, what the media you know likes to report on, and what you know entrepreneurial political scientists know can sell very well. It's basically there's often something wrong with conservatives, their thinking or their morality or their you know intuitions. Yes, like all humans, there are, and you know, ninety percent of the time or more, you can find an equivalent thing on the uh, on the left. Um, so you know, science denial. Like if you read a question mm-hmm. about science and, uh, you know, a paper on science denial, it's probably going to ask about global warming. Um, nobody's going to make a scale of science denial. It's yes. going to ask about male-female differences, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with prejudice. I mean, liberals are, you know, if you, basically mm-hmm. one of the interesting f- uh, findings um, is that basically if you do something like a trolley test where you you throw one fat man to save people mm-hmm. on the, you know, conservatives will show no, no bias on race, but liberals will towards helping blacks at, you know, the expense mm-hmm. of white. And then, they'll, you know, they'll say, oh no, that's different kind of racism, you know, whatever. And yeah, so, about Stereotype accuracy. A stereotypes, I guess, stereotype. Yeah, yeah so Lee, you, you actually published a piece on that, didn't yeah. you? Uh, Lee Jessam, who's uh, yeah. who's sort of the um, the, the, the yes. father of the study of yeah. stereotype yeah, talk, accuracy. Talk about science denial. Uh-huh. Yeah, Nate, Nate Honeycutt. People, yeah, they're stereotypes. All stereotypes, pretty much. Most stereotypes, at least, are, are true. Mm-hmm. Um, not not just true, but like, like um, super accurate compared to almost anything else in social science is what Jessam yeah. shows. Yeah, exactly. If you want, you know, you ask the average person what their stereotypes about groups is. Yeah, you you can rely more on that than a political scientist trying to explain you know those things mm-hmm. so yeah it's um yeah so like you'll see this like you know conservatives believe in stereotypes therefore they are racist and like it's just <laughs> it's often just true things i mean it's literally they're saying they're bad because they believe in true things mm-hmm. the other funny thing i mean the uh you have these democracy scales right mm-hmm. and you know they're, they're, so, they're so stupid i mean i had a substack on freedom house and like it's like oh the supreme court ruled against uh government labor unions forced collection of dues this this you know hurts you in our democracy score it's mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. you know what is how is that democracy mm-hmm. so yeah so if you look at like the political science sort of uh, uh, 
topic category on Twitter. It's like a good measure of what the political scientists who are getting the most attention now are doing. And you know, I tried to parody this, and like half the people thought it was real. Where I made like a democracy scale and showed it just going like this, and I showed racism going like that, racism going to democracy, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, "Are you serious? We're like, what is this stuff?" And people are like, "I can't tell because it's the exact same thing that every political scientist on Twitter <laughs> is doing." Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is this is not only a partisanship. This is you know this is scientism. This is I think another mm-hmm. problem with the field. Mm-hmm. So there are many theories that try to explain the deep, durable difference between left and right. I'm going to go through the, through, through a bunch of them and then just ask you what you think about each of them. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do you think about the theory the left cares more about the poor and powerless? Um, I, yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a theory that flatters the left. I don't, you know, I don't think it's true. I mean, you, you know, some, you know, something I think you've pointed out is the, you know, the most powerless in the world are, uh, you know, people in third world countries who are living in grinding poverty. You know, the left cares about them probably more than the right, but doesn't really care about mm-hmm. them, you know, compared to, compared to poor, poor Americans. Um, you know, the, um, if you look at something, you know, you look at something like, uh, uh, the pro-life movement. You know they'll claim that for themselves. Yeah, sure. They speak for the yeah. you know those who don't have a voice, and you know the, that has not always been. Yeah, who something. could be more poor and powerless than a fetus? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know historically, you know like something like free market economics, and you know the, the uh, say free market economics and like uh, pro gun and like pro life. You know that's a weird combination. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you found that many point parts in you know in history. You find ideologies that combine those things. So I think it's yeah. I think that both ideologies of both sides are sort of a, a mishmash of you know different things, and I don't think something like one side cares more about. Group X, and maybe like race X or you know, something, mm-hmm. uh, but no, not not in those terms. So, what do you think about personality theories, such as that the left is more open and less conscientious, while the right is less open and more conscientious? You know, there um, there is something to those, but if you look at those correlations, they're not as uh, you know mm-hmm. they're not that strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there is something, and this is uh, you know another thing that political science has announced. I, I do do think there is something to it. Uh, 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 f- uh, people's people's faces, uh, 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 physiognomy. Well, how do you mm-hmm. pronounce it? Is it f- yeah, physiognomy? I think, yeah, or? yeah. I know yeah. how to spell it. Yeah. <laughs> not pronounce it. So, I mean, you could. I think you know. So, somebody actually did a study where you can tell by people's faces like how racist they are. You know, racist in the political <laughs> sciences. Yeah. And it was it was very ironic because you know this is something that liberals think is a very scary thing to uh, research. So if you're going to do that for like crime or something, which you know mm-hmm. people used to believe a mm-hmm. hundred years ago, they don't believe now. I don't think that they've changed that for good reason. I think they've changed that for, you know, Mm -hmm. our views have changed for reasons of political correctness. Um, But, you know, it's funny because you look at, there was a picture of the professor who did this study and you just look at him, you know, you know, he's a liberal. And I think that like sort of there, there Mm -hmm. are these sort of, I think, traits, I think, you know, like testosterone in men seems to me Mm -hmm. like a clear one, sort of like where you are on the spectrum. If you're Mm -hmm. on the spectrum, that seems to uh, matter too. So actually, I'm actually more... um, I'm more optimistic for like these personality th- uh, things to have, you know, to have predictive power. I think the ones people have focused on haven't necessarily been the most important. Mm. All right. And this one is a bit obscure, but it came, comes right out of your alma mater, UCLA. So Sedanius's social dominance orientation a theory. Are you, are we, we could skip it if you're not familiar with it. Or? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. yeah. We, we ran into it and it was when I was studying political, uh, you didn't have a class with Sidanius. Uh, no, I don't think he wasn't there. I think he was at Harvard ah. at the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's just another one of these things where, you know, you have the, um, you know, it, it was actually, I, I, I 
I forget, I forget the details on this one, but I think it was like pretty, it was like, uh, it was those, the quote, those questions are almost like trolling. So mm-hmm. uh, if you look mm-hmm. at them, they're like, you know, uh, you know, strong should like step on the wheel. It's like, it's, it's like stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I think like, just the right answer. <laughs> People are conservative if they, you know, but Sedanius connects it to like his whole theory of like sort of a, uh, like a natural group conflict. He basically mm-hmm. believes like races are naturally competing. I don't think, you know, I think mm-hmm. Matt Carlson's theory of groups like, you know, makes, mm-hmm. should make people skeptical of um, of these uh, broad interest groups like rationally fighting with each other. So yeah, I, I reject that that framework. I don't think there's much there. All right? How about survive thrive theory? Sometimes associated with Scott Alexander. Uh huh. So yeah. So I I I read the I think I read the blog post. So the idea is when you are basically poor and you don't have a lot, you know, a lot, you just want to survive, and that means you know, I guess not, you know, not welcome foreigners and not, uh, you know, would be very careful and just try to get your genes to the next generation. And if you want to, you know, if you're a little bit wealthier, maybe you're more outgoing and open is, is it basically yeah, like that yeah, yeah so i think what he says is that uh, you know the conservatism is what you get when you're optimized for surviving and liberalism is what you get when you're optimized for thriving um yeah so you know like this is a story where there's just a natural tendency to go from yeah. poor conservative societies to rich leftist societies yeah i mean so one of the things you know uh one of our research fellows as uh, goldberg has found is that mental illness has a very strong correlation with the left so if left wing is you know optimized for um uh for thriving i don't you know i don't know what by what measures liberals are necessarily thriving yeah, like one of my criticisms is that during war societies almost always move left in terms of having enormous government role in the economy which is exactly the opposite of what yeah. survive theory I, I, you know, I, I don't know if like for Scott Alexander, but yeah, when war, I when war, I war socialism, when I hear yeah, that, right. I think of social conservatism versus liberalism. I don't mm-hmm. think about size of size of government. And I, I think I think he's packing it all together. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. When I when I when I I think that I actually when I, when I hear this theory, like my prior is that people um, understand that the economics thing is malleable, like small government or yeah. Or, or, no, I don't. Th- I don't think there's no, in there. I mean, I mean, you know, or like another uh, counterexample, I would say is pro-choice, pro-life. I think yeah. that his theory should be that when you're poor, then it's like board anyone we can't afford, and when you're rich, then it would be like every every person's entitled to a place at our table. Yeah. And that's of course is exactly the opposite of how it goes in the U.S. Yeah. and probably most countries. So, so, so yeah. So yeah. I mean, my intuition is that like your views on abortion or uh, homosexuality, for example, are less contingent on sort of, um, you know, the, uh, le- le- are basically less easy, less easy to manipulate based on just simple cues than mm-hmm. your views on economics. I don't think mm-hmm. people feel economics very close, you know, uh, and there are, except for the stuff that like everyone agrees on, which like don't sell your organs and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess it depends on exactly what we're trying to find. And so if, I mean, if you apply Scott Alexander to, um, uh, his, theory to social social issues i mean there is that correlation that's very interesting mm-hmm. that as countries mm-hmm. um get wealthier um they do sort of have more you know liberal um mm-hmm. attitudes and it's hard because it's confounded by a lot because i mean we have a global culture mm-hmm. right and so um right and i also say this is all based upon throwing out marxist leninist regimes as being really real leftist because they were very socially conservative except yeah. at the very beginning of the soviet yeah. union they had a year or two of 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 anomia, but yeah. but afterwards, you know, like you know, fam, family, every kid in a family, and, yeah. and wearing blue jeans. No, it's a gulag for you. Well, but when you say they were, I mean, they were poor, so they're they're surviving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, they were poor. They were poor. So, no, no, but rather, but they were extreme leftists. So you have to say they're yes. left. okay. Yes, you can. Yeah, so so, so to, given that they're leftists, you should expect them to be super super open minded mm-hmm. about sex orientation and, you know, and yeah. so on. I mean, of course, there's plenty of people saying, oh, well, the Soviet Union was so great for women. It's like, oh yeah, it's real great. They have to do all the work of a traditional woman plus yeah. also have a job. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, so I mean, if I think the most most charitable you know interpretation is not going back in time, and you know, I think yeah, mm-hmm. from a political philosophy perspective, unquestionably, um, communist regimes are, are left wing, right? Yes. I think the most charitable interpretation is he's just he's basically just trying to explain abortion and gays, <laughs> and from that, like libertarians are here, and like you know, they're uh, and liberals, and then communists and social conservatives are here. I think that I think that's what he's trying to do. Um, well, right, absolutely, I, I shouldn't. Yeah. One, one, one must wonder when you have to throw out almost all the data, and especially, the, the, data, especially except, the most extreme yeah. data. Like, we're going to figure out how to, how to explain leftism, and Mao and Stalin and Lenin don't count. Yeah, so yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right, and now, last one. Um, this one is probably the least well-known, although it's near and dear to my heart. I call this my simplistic theory of left and right. Yeah. And my simplistic theory just says this. Uh, the left is anti-market, and the right is anti-left. And again, of course, this does not mean that all leftists are communists, but rather that the common thread for almost all leftists is they all feel high resentment for markets, such that they can't bear to go and give a paragraph of praise for markets without putting in something negative. And on the other hand, for the right, there isn't anything actually that they're that enthusiastic about, necessarily, you know, that they can all agree they're enthusiastic about, but, you know, but the, what they can agree on is they do not like those leftists. And so I, I say, like, if you just imagine gathering together a giant conference of 200 years worth of international leftists, 200 years worth of international rightists, and say, write a statement that almost all of you can agree on. I say that the statement of the pan-leftist group would be a bunch of complaints about markets, and the statement of the pan-rightist group would be a bunch of complaints about leftists. So, what do you think about it? Uh, I think that when you, yeah, when you put it like that, that is actually a good point. If you are just looking for like a few paragraphs that all basically left, but what about I mean, would would rightists? Uh, you know, most rightists like you know fascists and, and so mm-hmm. forth. I think you know, and then like you know, uh, so monarchists. I think there would be a lot of complaints in in markets too, but maybe yeah. more complaints of, about leftists, right? So it's not necessarily right. right. Well, what right I say is, you know, among rightists, there are plenty of anti-market rightists, but yeah. th- but that's can, that var- that varies. You're allowed mm-hmm. to have a wide range of views on markets and still be in the right, but you can't go around saying, oh, leftists. I think they're real cool. Yeah. They're 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 such great people. Well, why not? Why not just uh, cr- characterize it as concern for equality and equality? Can it's always selective, always on one dimension. So it was like you know, under Stalin, they thought about equality between workers, right, and and mm-hmm. the capitalists or whoever the owners are. And now they think about equality between races and don't care necessarily as much about inequality, economic, relative to mm-hmm. like uh, uh, between races, right? Why not just say concern with equality and then markets mm-hmm. get in the way? Hmm. Well, I guess I would say that a lot of conservatives say I care uh, very strongly about equality, equality under the law, equality of opportunity. Yeah, and well, so so again, again, you sort of have to assume the left. View of what kind of equality counts, right. in, in order count in order to do the classification, which is kind of what I don't want to do. Yeah, and and Freddie Deborah, I just interviewed, mm-hmm. told me that equality is not central to Marxism, which blew my mind. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. so we'll have to take his his word for it. But I think you know the way the way I think about it is like, you know, I, I want I, I agree with you. The right, just in America at least, I don't know about you know forever uh, hates the left, and they're just responding to mm-hmm. the left. Yeah, so I mean, they'll hate is too strong. But they'll, they'll get antipathy. The word uh, antipathy, I think, is underused. There's yeah. a lot a lot of people are accused of hating something when yeah. really it's just like, well, I don't hate it. Hate. Sure. I, it's just yeah, negative, some kind of negative emotionality yeah. towards the left. Yes. And then what the left is, I mean, the way I think about what the left wants, I think, what do they get most emotional about? Like, uh, well, you know, what do they attack people for? What are they, you know, will they physically assault you for or try to get you mm-hmm. fired? And it's not the, it's not the person who's the most free market. It's the mm-hmm. person who's ever the, on the furthest scale of being the most racist or sexist or mm-hmm. homophobic. So that's why I don't see that. Right. Although, although that's fairly contingent to today's leftists in yeah. certain countries. So 
piece. So, it's not a it's not a, a general theory of leftists in general. Yeah, but why yeah. do we need a? I mean, general yeah. theory is are these? Are oh, we just we're social scientists? We love to get a big theory <laughs> yeah. that explains everything all at yeah, once. But so, it, seems, it seems like we're you know we're taking these labels and like can you can you make uh, something in common between today's debates of critical race theory and like fascism versus communism and like maybe and maybe not or mm-hmm. maybe we're just stretching and trying to, right. you know, to find something there. All right, one of your most famous pieces argues the left is succeeding because their cardinal preferences are more intense. Could you walk us through your story, hold our hands, and make sure we understand every piece? Yeah, okay. So, like, in an election, basically, people vote, and um, that's, you know, that's uh, that's ordinal preferences, right? I prefer candidate X to candidate Y. And, in, 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 uh, you know, in those terms, America's pretty evenly divided. You know, Republicans and Democrats both get, at the national level, roughly half the votes in presidential elections. You know, maybe one gets, usually Democrats win the popular vote, but, you know, it's very close. Um, and, but basically, every institution in the country is... Is, is, is every you know not every institution every major non-religious institution mm-hmm. um, leans left right if they get mm-hmm. if they if they comment on like uh, uh, racial issues or they comment on um, you know um, something regarding gender or sexual orientation it's always you know the left wing position and so this is you know woke capital woke ins- woke institutions and um, I think you know I think this can be explained by the fact that look on election day everyone is equal but the other uh, three hundred sixty four uh, four days of the year um, we are we're not equal. I mean, some of us think about politics a lot and do a lot to try to influence um, institutions and government. And some of us just, you know, go watch a football game or hang out with the family or whatever. And, you know, the, uh, a, a series of sort of, um, uh, you know, different pieces of evidence converge on the same idea that liberals just care about politics. And that more. would be a cardinal preference. That would be cardinal preference. How much you care about politics mm-hmm. relative to everything else, you know, on planet Earth. Um, and so, like, you know, what's the evidence for this? Liberals are more likely to, you know, uh, sign petitions, more likely to protest. I mean, that's just a, uh, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, I don't think anyone needs data to believe that. Um, more, more likely to cut off, you know, um, uh, people in their mm-hmm. lives over more, political More likely use. to donate money to political causes as well, right? Um, yes. Well, the, this is this is relatively recent. So if you just look at, mm-hmm. um, I don't know about all causes, but as far as, mm-hmm. you know, we have good data on Republicans versus Democrats mm-hmm. in national elections. Mm-hmm. And especially since the Trump era um, from, uh, from, uh, from regular donors, yes, Democrats have outraised Republicans by a lot. Um, so, yeah, the, um, and then, you know, I think also like going into fields like journalism and academia, mm-hmm. which aren't the most financially mm-hmm. remunerative for, for, um, for someone's intelligence and education level, um, those attract overwhelming leftists. It's not just, you know, the bias of these fields or whatever. So you put that all together. I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a simple theory, which is just liberals care more. And this can, this can uh, explain, you know, uh, liberal institutions mm-hmm. being liberal. This is a case of care more about politics, not care more about people. Uh, care more about politics. Now, you can have yes. the most negative or the most positive interpretation <laughs> of that. They can mm-hmm. be just, they love the world and they want to make it better, or they have something missing in their lives and they want to just tell people what to do. Yeah, either way works. So the reason why people at your cell phone store have to go through mandatory left-wing brainwashing is the cardinal preferences of the left are stronger. Is that the story? Uh, yes. I think I think that basically if you have a, um, you know, if a corporation um, uh, takes a right-wing position on something. You know, there, I have another essay civil right, uh, on civil rights law. This is another comp- I, 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 uh, Gabe Rossman from UCLA, um, he, he summarized my argument good. Civil rights law is basically a force amplifier for the left. Mm-hmm. Um, but just setting, setting that aside, um, the fact is, yeah, if you, you know, look at what happened with Ch- uh, Chick, uh, uh, Chick-fil-A. Um, so, what did happen with Chick-fil-A? I haven't been following it. <laughs> well, you, it was like a decade ago. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, All right, so, 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 well, so well, what, what was the final outcome? Uh, the final outcome was was basically um, they they backed so the the guy who the the owner of Chick Fil A was basically anti gay marriage he donated mm-hmm. to anti gay mm-hmm. marriage 
large causes. Liberals boycotted um, uh, Chick-fil-A. Um, they protested Chick-fil-A. There was basically even some cities like trying to kick them out of the airport. Mm-hmm. And the final outcome was basically he, you know, he gave up and you know said he's not going to donate. I don't know if he officially said this, but he stopped mm-hmm. donating, caring about the issue at all. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's nothing stopping conservatives from. Well, now it's hard because every it's every corporate you'd have to do it to every corporation. But like you know, when this was starting, you know, there 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 didn't like you know there wasn't any reason why conservatives couldn't like similarly have similar similarly have cared. You know, I was seeing there was some like outdoor. Uh, I remember there was some outdoor brand in like Wisconsin or, or Wisconsin, Wyoming, or like Montana, one of these states, and it was like the liberals had like pressured them into taking some left wing position. And you know, you, those liberals were probably you know were certainly a small minority of Wyoming, the state, or you mm-hmm, know whatever. Yeah the area and they just still had more influence. And, you know, this is, I think, uh, yeah, I mean the, the most normal humans, most normal human beings like do not, you know, will buy the product that they like and not care about the politics of the CEO. The minority that does is going to have an outsized influence. And I think that explains a lot. Um, so my main criticism of your original piece is that you need discrimination law, not just asymmetric cardinal preferences to explain the sheer uniformity of leftist influence. Uh, since then, you already mentioned that piece. It seems like you've moved in my direction. Uh, have you? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I think they're. I think they're complementary theories. I yes. think there's a force amplifier. I think liberals care more. I think. Um, I think. Uh, I think that. Uh, yeah, and the law is basically, especially on anything having to do with race, gender, and sexual orientation. It's basically got its thumb on the scale. Um, left wing, some left wing dogma. You know, it's funny we debate like the causes of differences between you know men and women or different races, like in you know in uh, in journals and magazines. But uh, legally, you're, as you're as a business, you're only allowed to believe in mm-hmm. one thing, which is that underrepresentation is caused by discrimination at some level. Yeah, like the thought experiment I sometimes think about is imagine if there were a business, a reason, a middling prominent corporation that just had a pile of propaganda all over saying this is a colorblind workplace. Yeah. We uh, so please avoid any discussion of 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 the of such issues and also this is a place where everyone is treated fairly and then it is known that if you start complaining and saying that there that people that you are being treated unfairly that people say well you are going against the company this is not our way here so and just imagine the legal exposure of a company like that if they were to be that forthright. Yeah, it, it, it's not like just that the, the government is reactive. The government forces uh, businesses and institutions to take affirmative steps to count people, um, mm-hmm. to count mm-hmm. people by race and gender. So the race and mm-hmm. uh, sex blindness, you know, uh, um, are for all practice, practical purposes illegal. And this is spe- mm-hmm. and, and government contractors and their subcontractors, mm-hmm. and that's like every major corporation are required to practice affirmative action. Um, and I think you know, so yeah, I mean these these essays were part of a trilogy. So you know they they um, you know they I you know I think. These are these are complementary theories. I think another you know essay I could write, or you know I hint at it in those, is that basically um, you know the fact that liberal liberalism I think gives people a more a, a cons- more consistent sort. Of, you know, it, it can appeal to idealistic people because it has a more consistent narrative. Most conservatives, if you ask them what's the cause of group differences, so put it this way: if you ask liberals what the cause of group differences, I yes. think what they say in private and what they say in public is pretty much the same thing. Uh-huh. They think it's discrimination. Mm-hmm. I think if you ask most conservatives what they think, why they think mm-hmm. some groups earn more than others, you get wildly different um, mm-hmm. uh, explanations. Or sometimes just denial, so like, like 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 we're all the same now. Yeah, or, like, or, like, what? or they avoid talking about it. Yes, because. 
because they yeah. don't want to they don't want to say why. Mm-hmm. So I, you, you know the the that has short term political. You know people do it for a reason that has short term political benefits, but also like prevents you from having a coherent narrative that can you know uh, motivate a lot of people. Would you generalize your cardinal preference theory to explain, for example, why radical Islam punches above weight? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mm-hmm. mean the you know the, the, someone's going to come chop off your head if you say the wrong thing is mm-hmm. you know is <laughs> an incentive to. to yeah, not so there's say a lot the wrong of countries thing. that seem to be ruled by radical Islamists. Does not mean that the typical person there actually yeah. wants to chop off heads. It's just that yeah. the people that don't want to chop off heads are not as vehement about the non-chopping off of heads as yeah. the people who want to chop heads off are about the chopping of heads. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, you know, the willingness, I mean, look at the, yeah, the I mean, the willingness to actually suffer great consequences mm-hmm. for your beliefs. I mean, you look at some of the, the uh, is you have these repressive governments in the Middle East and like nobody is basically, you know, willing to, uh, to like nobody was basically, um, uh, you know, an activist against Saddam Hussein or hating the government from within the country, except basically religious extremists. And you can mm-hmm. see, you could see why you could see why religion would mm-hmm. give people the courage that they otherwise mm-hmm. wouldn't have. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think that, that that's the secret of Islamism. And this is why sort of like when people say, Oh, the woke are gonna, you know, they're going to, uh, inspire a backlash and it's going to be self-defeating or they could say the same mm-hmm. thing about Islamic extremists. Like maybe like, yeah, they get a bunch of passive, the passive majority to dislike them. But you know, with a small minority that really cares, you could, you know, you can indefinitely, you know, mm-hmm. influence policy in your direction. So don't, don't rely on the backlash. Yeah, but so you've argued that critical race theory bans will not work. Could you explain your argument and the extent to which you subsequently changed your mind? Uh, so yeah, the um, the critical race theory bans. You know, you basically come down. The state says you're not going to teach you know critical race theory, and sometimes they they, they define it. And uh, uh, the, you know this has been this has been a hot thing. I mean, a lot of states have done this now. Um, and my, you know, my argument is basically you're still get my argument when I wrote the Substack piece was basically that you're still going to get um, people. Um, basically, it's still the same left-wing people running the mm-hmm. institutions, right? The people who thought it was a good idea to teach, you know, kindergartners that, you know, they have white privilege are still the same people who are going to teach your kids mm-hmm. and you can't, you know, micromanage uh, mm-hmm. to any large extent exactly what they're going to say. Now, I've had a little bit of, you know, I, I you know, I think I've actually listened to the people who are critics of these bands and they, in my mind, they made the case for them because what they say <laughs> is there's a chilling effect. So people are going to, you know, they're, they're going to just not want to talk about racism mm-hmm. in the classroom at all if there's potential consequences. And I say, good, we are we overemphasize uh, racism as an explanatory force in American life? So if you're mm-hmm. going to chill something and you have mm-hmm. to chill something, uh, chill the idea mm-hmm. that all disparities are caused by discrimination, which I think is mm-hmm. wrong. Right, um, and plus these are little kids. So normally we're supposed to sugarcoat things for little kids. We, you know, yeah. Even if it were true that racism were the main re- were, were a terrible thing in your society, you wouldn't normally go and try to terrify children yeah, about you, it. You, wanna, you, know, you don't go to, a kids, uh, to your kids and say, yes, murder. Yes. There's lots of murder happening <laughs> in the United States. Let's talk about murder. <laughs> right? right? It was like, these are children. Like, yeah. you're, like you're, Most people <laughs> want to shelter them for a while. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I mean, I think, and, and actually when Trump did the executive order banning the uh, uh, critical race theory uh, trainings in the federal government, they were all over Twitter saying, you know, I've had 10 government contracts canceled, like, what is this fascism? And I was like, okay, something, <laughs> Trump was good for something, something worked. Um, so, yeah, it gave me, uh, and, and people, you know, I've talked to people in the Trump administration who say basically, yeah, I mean, there was just like ridiculous stuff that was in the works and just didn't go forward because of the uh, the executive order. So, yeah, I think, I 
I think creating a chilling, I think understanding how the left was, uh, you know, effective, basically, um, you know, often creating a chilling effect, expanding definitions of things like racism just used to mean like you were a Klansman and now it means basically everyone who's not a far leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, doing that in reverse, you know, mm-hmm. could, could be, uh, uh, could, could be useful, could be beneficial. Yeah, so you already touched on this a little bit, but let's go in deeper. You seem impressed by the connection between leftism and mental illness. Could you explain the evidence and tell us what it means? Uh, so yeah, this is, um, uh, look up Zach Goldberg's work. He has some Twitter threads and he has a Substack, and, you know, he has, uh, other, other things in the works on this. Yeah. I mean, if you ask people if they've been diagnosed with a, for a mental illness and it's particularly left-wing, uh, left-wing women, I don't know if it's just white women or but left-wing women in, in particular, um, high, high education, left-wing women or all, I think, women? I think it's, I think it holds all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if you, th- I think the correlation between, uh, liberalism and mental illness, now, I actually, you know, I, I wonder, you wonder which way the correlation goes. And, you know, some people will say they're more likely to be um, diagnosed. Yeah, to or, medicalize the problems. Yeah, they're more likely to medicalize the, their problems. I, I, I um, yeah, I mean, it, that, you know, that, that, that potentially could be, um, you know, that, that, yeah, that trouble right winger talks so, so with priests, tr- trouble left winger talks with psychiatrists. Yeah. Uh, so actually I was, I was, um, I, I don't know if Zach has done that. I've talked to Zach about this and I, I, I either told, either he told me the work was done or he wanted to go do it, but basically mm-hmm. to see whether like if you could troll for having visited a psychiatrist and then you can mm-hmm. say, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, whether you've been uh, diagnosed, but, but, you know, I, I, th- I actually think, you know, medicalization of your problems, I think is a sign of, you know, something going wrong. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we've been come mentally healthier as a society as we've done uh, more of that. And, but it actually, also, the other thing that Zach says is, if you ask people specific symptoms, not only have you been diagnosed with a mental mm-hmm. illness, but have you felt like so angry you could scream? I don't know, that's not the exact uh-huh. question, but stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you do get many, many more uh, self-reported symptoms. Now you could say maybe conservatives just, you know, hide it from the cell, but you have to keep, like, sort of building on the theory to explain, you know, explain away the data that seems to point in a consistent direction. But anyone would be horrified in this horrible world if they had, <laughs> if they had any kind a decency, right? I mean, not, not necessarily. I mean, your feelings are um, your feelings are your feelings. I mean, they're uh, you know the world has a certain you know, level leftists of are people who appreciate the horror of the world, and right wingers are colorblind to the horror of the world. That could be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, potentially, yeah. right? I mean, like I don't think there is a objective answer to how happy you should be given the state of the world, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think the world sucks, so therefore you should be miserable. I don't know if that makes it better, right? Is that does, does that follow? Right. All right. So how bad is wokeism compared to Marxism, Leninism in its heyday? Oh, I mean, come on, Marxism. Yes. You're not, it's not a fair yeah. comparison. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> I, my next question is, is the analogy absurd hyperbole or what? Um, so I, I, I think absurd hyperbole or just like, Regular hyperbole. It's hyperbole. I think that you know it's regular hyper. It's regular hyperbole. Uh, The uh, um, you know if you're thinking about problems today, and sometimes I I even think that like you know I look at the the anti woke people on the left, and they're saying you know don't focus on even if you're just looking at today, forget the historical baggage of Marxism, Leninism. Um, and they say things like, we should not focus on race, we should focus on class. Mm-hmm. And I often think, you know, that's probably <laughs> probably worse. I mm-hmm. mean, I, uh, you know, your race you didn't choose, so you're punishing people for things they didn't choose. But, you know, your, uh, your uh, socioeconomic status is, depends on your hard work and intelligence. So instead of... Oh, also your parents. Uh, yeah, yeah, so punishing yeah. people for yeah, so, things so, that so, are good. Yeah. Is, Communist <laughs> regimes throw you in jail be, or, or, or worse because your parents were rich. So yeah. you're, the, you're the son of a nobleman. Siberia yeah. for you. Yeah, but I mean, people, I mean, yeah. modern 
don't know if that's yeah. done. Yeah, or, or, you know, uh, or North Korea. Like, uh, like if you got the yeah. wrong ancestry, you're a permanent unperson in, the, yeah. in North Although Korea. Although in practical effects, if you want to equalize even opportunity of outcome, you have to punish people for having good parents, right? You have to mm-hmm. sometime, somehow break the connection between uh, uh, you know, parent, the parents' actions and, and the outcomes of the children. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is a horrifying thing. Hmm. All right. Now, this question's a bit harder, but uh, let's try it anyway. All right. Holding skill constant, what economists would call marginal productivity or what industrial psychologists would call job performance. Uh, In what year did or will the net effect of being white on career success become negative? Uh, So what's, what's the first year where it actually became bad to be white for your career success in the United States, holding your skill constant. I think that it depends on sort of the industry and the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. but, but like a you know, randomly selected person, is it bad to be white now? A randomly selected or, yeah. person to yeah. be white. Working a worker. Um, yeah. yeah, I think probably probably non-white is better. Um, yeah, but what, what year did the, what year was the crossing point where uh, it actually became disadvantageous to be white? Uh, so are you? I mean, are you controlling for like, for example, like the blacks had a you know they were in uh, they j- tended to be in like the rural South, right? And they mm-hmm. tended to live there. And so if they were worse off because of that, would you say that that's because yeah, of so uh, hold, holding skill constant? So if, hold, uh, if, if being, rural, being, in, being in a rural area, yeah, uh, hold, so, so yeah. like a black a black in Chicago of the same yeah. skills as a white person in Chicago yeah, so like in nineteen. All, yeah, all the things are, that would be in a usual wage regression. Um, yeah, I mean, I think once you eliminate all that, I mean, I think it was probably, you know, um, so I think that, yeah, for the median person who was not working a white-collar uh, job, mm-hmm. um, and most people were, you know, still most people are mm-hmm. not college graduates, mm-hmm. I think the, the labor unions basically had exclusionary, mm-hmm. you know, they were mm-hmm. excluding uh, blacks, um, and they were excluding, you know, it was basically family and people mm-hmm. you know. And so if you think that's closer to the median worker than, mm-hmm. say, being a professor, mm-hmm. I think being a black professor versus a white yeah, professor sure. in the field was probably the 19th. I mean, fifties. I'm sure you know was probably at mm-hmm. least by the sixties for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, if you're thinking the mm-hmm. median blue collar worker, mm-hmm. um, you know that probably you know maybe switches in the maybe in the eighties. I don't know. Like if I have to put All a right. date on it, so unions cause systemic racism. Uh, yeah, I would, I would I would say so. But even those unions, like if you're gonna like if you're saying you know it's not like the um, uh, you know a white person with no connections would also be sort of um, you mm-hmm. know you're hurt there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's. Um, you know, I think for like the, our circles, I mean, I think the the disadvantage to being white was much, uh, you know, was much came much sooner and is much more extreme than it is in other fields. All right, same question, but this time for males. When did it? But what year did it first become disadvantageous for your career to be male? For, see, so for your career, or, so, or, or again, of course, it's possible that you'll say it's in the future and it's going to happen. It's totally up to you. Uh, so when, when did it become disadvantageous to be a male? So is it? Um, so like oh, are, 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 skill are, constant, holding yeah, skill s- constant, strength. So we're yeah, we're imagining no, 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 not just not no. no, no, no you know, like like you know, like all you know, all labor all, all like occupationally relevant <laughs> right. scales. So the ever you know the for the woman who is as strong as the average or somebody who yeah, is yeah, in yeah, between we, we, yeah, you would men have to, yes, and yes, women. Yes, you'd and, have to imagine that a woman who's just <laughs> as good at lifting furniture. If that's you know that's a job, but yeah. you'd also you know, but of course this would also be you know, picking stocks and hedge fund or you know, yeah, but, but, yeah, everything in between. Um, you know, I th- you know so the. Um, yeah, the holding skill. I mean, the holding skill constant is yeah, like, because I, I, they, I know that's so, what makes it fun. <laughs> they're so different. So I think that look, okay, if you had a woman in the 1960s who acted like a typical stockbroker, I don't think that would have gone over well. Yeah. I think people would have thought that was weird. I think by the 1970s and 80s, now given that you know yeah. you're, you're a woman and you're you have those inclinations, by the time you're protected with anti discrimination laws, which go mm-hmm. beyond even the Civil Rights Act, I think you're you're better off. Now, if you're just a typical office drone um, and you have the same skills, right? I mm-hmm. mean, maybe. 
maybe, you know, maybe you, you did, you know, have an advantage because men, you know, it depends on what you look like too. I mean, uh, men probably yes. discriminate in favor of pretty women and discriminate against mm-hmm. ugly women relative to men. So it's a, it's just a very complicated, mm-hmm. you know, complicated mm-hmm. question. All right. How about same question for straight? When did, when did, or will it become dis- disadvantageous for your career to be straight? I mean, are we holding, so are we holding yeah, hold, holding homosexual man who has a relationship with his partner yes. in the way that a heterosexual yeah, to- man. Totally out of the closet. Yeah. When, when, when did it start to be, when, when, when did or will it become better for him, for his career for, yeah. to be openly gay? So I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I buy into the, uh, more of, uh, the, um, the idea that it's disadvantaged for, to be gay, even, even, uh, today. So I'm not, I'm not that old. I was in high school mm-hmm. in like the late 1990s and there was maybe one or two gay kids. And if you heard someone was gay, you hated that person. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, know, I, mean, I, I remember that in the eighties. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was I mean, before. Yes. So this was not, yes. mine was, you know, more recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so this was, yeah. this was about the, you know, and so like, and that's, you were, oh, that's right. You did not grow up in California. You were in Chicago. So yeah. it's not quite as shocking. Yeah. And so even like, forget about the overinterpretation anti-discrimination until recently, um, there wasn't even, you know, a, a federal, the courts made it, but there wasn't mm-hmm. even a federal anti-discrimination law against mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality. Um, so I would say probably today it's still, um, it's still advantage, advantageous to be straight. Now, ac- again, mm-hmm. academics, yeah. PC, uh-huh. journalism, mm-hmm. maybe politics in certain areas. The, yeah. Then All right, same question, but for cisgendered. <laughs> you're still right. listen. You're so much else going on when you're transgendered. I'm not. Yes, I yeah. refuse to control okay. for okay. Okay. Right. All that right. stuff. All right. Okay. Uh, so, to what extent do you accept the Bakarian view that market forces tend to eliminate taste-based discrimination? Uh, why? Why do they eliminate taste-based discrimination? Because if you are refusing to hire people who are just as qualified because yeah. you don't like their group, then you are leaving money on the table, and you, if you won't hire them, the competition will. Uh, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, people have. Right preferences, so that would say like you know people do care about who they're mm-hmm. around, and it's just it's just an empirical question the strength of their preferences on these things, right? Right. So you you say you're skeptical of that, or you think that that's uh, you know, I, again I, this is the real world question. So like know, how, like I, how how powerful is this mechanism in so, the real world according to Richard and Andy? So I think so the um, you know if you're talking about one industry, I mm-hmm. think you can have you know discrimination indefinitely. When you have something like an open market where like if people are rejected from X mm-hmm. and they have the you know the, the, mm-hmm. still the same amount of Intelligence and the same amount of family, uh, you know, a healthy family life and um, mm-hmm. uh, ability, and they can go into you know Y field like mm-hmm. uh, like ethnic groups who mm-hmm. are you know talented have done throughout history. Um, then I think at the at the you know I don't think um, taste based mm-hmm. discrimination would explain much. Ex- mm-hmm. Would you, would have would go far to explain differences between groups and how they're doing socioeconomically. Can it explain one field or one industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's get a little wonkish here. So. Economists distinguish between taste-based discrimination where you just go, ooh, yuck, I don't like those people, I don't want to hire them, mm. and statistical discrimination where you say, no, no, I, I have perfectly normal feelings towards them. It's just that statistically, yeah. they have some traits, and it's just too much work for me to figure out what's going on. The most obvious example would be why do auto insurance companies charge higher premiums to young males? They probably don't have a dartboard with a bunch of teenage males on it yeah. where they go, God, I hate them. I, I hate young males so much. They're, they're terrible. Instead, it is yeah. you've got some actuaries at the insurance company saying, well, statistically, these young males get into 50% more accidents than yeah. young women, and so we're going to go and charge them higher premiums. So, anyway, so we got taste-based discrimination. We got statistical discrimination. My question for you is, over the last 60 years in the U.S. labor market, what has happened to the ratio of taste-based to statistical discrimination? 
Uh, so the um, the statistical discrimination is very interesting. So uh, Tom Sowell says basically when he was you know in, in the army and he was like I don't I don't know what he was doing. He was like he knew something about cameras and when people saw he was like he had some technical skill they were impressed. A black mm-hmm. guy mm-hmm. you know with all his disadvantages you know had that. Mm-hmm. and you know people don't mm-hmm. think like that anymore because we understand there's massive affirmative action right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, there's probably you know there's the more we make statistical discrimination more rational the more of it there is. So for promoting people based on their skin color or their gender, mm-hmm. the more, you know, the, mm-hmm. the heavier they go on affirmative action, the heavier mm-hmm. you should go on statistical discrimination. Just, mm-hmm. you know, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's common sense. So I think there's, there's more of it. There might've been statistical discrimination, you know, holding skills constant, all that there might've been, you know, um, more, uh, 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 more, you know, so there might've actually gone in the opposite direction in certain cases. Um, and then uh, taste-based discrimination. I think this is, this has changed, at least social, you know, mm-hmm. what people say they want mm-hmm. has changed over time. But you also, if you look at like uh, interracial marriage, right, that has mm-hmm. gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does seem like we are, yeah, it does seem like we are, um, uh, you know, people are becoming, you know, less uh, discriminating, less based on race and their taste. You know, the most unregulated thing is who people date and marry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's going in the opposite direction. All right. Um, moving back to foreign, po- foreign policy a little bit. To what extent are you anti-anti-Putin? <laughs> so um, I'm very anti-anti-Putin. Yes, I, you know I think that we we you know we sit there and we um, you know we sit there and we say okay this this guy is um, doing bad. So like okay it's like it's the question is not. What they, what the, I think the foreign policy hawks want the question to be is whether Saddam Hussein is a good. They want a referendum mm-hmm. on Saddam Hussein's personality uh-huh. or Putin's personality, mm-hmm. you know. And they want you not to think too hard when they say Putin did X. Okay, Putin poisoned some journalist. Now let's go defend Ukraine. Okay, well, like the, the mm-hmm. connection between A and B, you know, is mm-hmm. not really there. But the, but I think mm-hmm. they understand something intuitively psychologically that if you can get somebody to hate Putin or hate Saddam, um, you're just going to do whatever seems anti-Putin or anti-Saddam, whether it's connected to any you know rational goal in the real world. So uh, uh, anti-Putinism and, you know, anti-Shiism, anti-Shiism, uh, Xi Jinping, not Xi, like Shiism, uh, anti, you know, anti, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, anti-Iran, you know, sentiment. I, I think these are harmful to our politics and I think they short, uh, short circuit, you know, rational thinking. Yeah, so I, I am no fan of Putin myself, but definitely, if in 1980 you had told me that this he would be the leader of the former Soviet Union, mm-hmm. say, "Wow, it's like not that bad." It's yeah. like this; ha- and that it goes from being a horrible totalitarian despot to yeah. a guy who's like a normal authoritarian dictator. Big improvement. Yeah. So actually, I mean, you know, it, it, like the last uh, you know the last two years with lockdowns, mm-hmm. I mean, has really yeah. made me. Um, like, you know, not very sympathetic to the view that there are these uh, authoritarian regimes and mm-hmm. they're much worse than us democracies, uh-huh. right? I, I care a lot more about showing my face in public than I do my right to vote. And Russia and mm-hmm. Belarus have had less, you know, restrictions mm-hmm. during COVID than a lot mm-hmm. of Western democracies, especially in places like Australia. So I have no patience for their, their right. democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're non-democracies. They're bad. I think we've, we've, I think we've gone so overboard with COVID, so been so neglectful mm-hmm. of individual rights and, and liberty and cost-benefit analysis that there is a moral equivalency or in some ways, you know, we've been worse. I mean, there's also the question of, well, who do you think would be ruling the Russia if not for Putin. I think that's and, a, and like who would that? What would that guy be like? Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I, I'm pretty. I can. You know, I feel comfortable condemning yeah. Bush because if Bush mm-hmm. wasn't president, you know, if it was say Gore, I, I think the American foreign policy would have been a lot uh, better and a lot of fewer people would have died. You know, if Putin was replaced by the you know, the median outcome, if you replace Putin, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not yeah. sure things would be better. Will it's, there be a day when we say, "Wow, things weren't so bad under <laughs> <or> Putin"? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is why. Like, it, it's hard enough to you know uh, like make these moral judgments in your own country. 
country and I don't like this, you know, this idea that you could put everyone on a democracy scale or we could say this person's mm-hmm. bad. And you have to look at you, know, you have to look at their contest, you have to look at their circumstances. I, I I'm allergic to this sort of morality under morality tale understanding of international politics. All right. So same question except anti anti Orban. So I you know I'm yeah I'm anti anti Orban even you know even more so. I think I think that Orban is actually you know um, you know I, I don't think Hungary is um, uh, less free than other European countries. Um, what about all the newspapers he shut down? He didn't shut down. I mean, he didn't shut down newspapers. That's, it's basically that, that's, that's not true. No, it, it's basically like his. You know, it, it, they say they say they say things like, "Well, it's you know, I." It's basically their complaints are more along the lines of like, um, you know, they they stopped government funding to a newspaper that needed government mm-hmm. funding to to survive, mm-hmm. or that Orban's friends like had uh, bought some newspaper that you know was mm-hmm. was anti Orban before, which is like you know people's friends buy news. I mean that that happens in Western countries. I'll tell you one thing Hungary doesn't do, which is put people jail in the jail for their opinions, which France and I, Germany and and Sweden actually do. I mean they do arrest people for hate speech, and the reason that's not considered anti democratic is because it's more of a left wing uh, kind of totalitarianism. So I you know I, I don't think you know I don't think I, I think it's a narrative. I think it's a narrative. I think people don't like Orban because he's because he's right leaning right because of his views on immigration, uh, gender, sexuality, things like mm-hmm. that, and I think that they they call that anti democratic, and that's you know how they understand who is anti democratic in the in the U.S. too. So um, yeah, I, I, I you know I'm, I don't buy the you know Orban is undemocratic narrative. All right, and uh, same question again, except for Xi or uh, or she, as you called him, of China. Um, anti yeah. anti Xi. Um, same. I mean, same thing. Uh, probably what I say to, yeah, about Putin. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a. Um you know the 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 you know the refer- they want the referendum to be like you know is this person a good person or not and that's like not a guide to american foreign policy it can inform your understanding of american foreign policy but i think a lot of people want that to be the conversation and you know i just have uh, i just have just such an aversion to that all right, uh, moving on. Uh, were you a COVID dub from the start or only after the vaccine became available? After the vaccine, now, if you give me my information now and like mm-hmm. put me back to the start, I would have probably been close to a dub from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, then this is based on what Philippe Lemoine has done and basically shown it's hard. You have to squint mm-hmm. very hard to see any effect of any restriction on um, COVID transmission or, or, or deaths, right? And so given the costs of the lockdowns, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, the, it's, it's the burdens on, you know, those who would... Uh, uh, who would you know take away people's rights and destroy the economy to to prove that they're doing something? Um, and then so, but uh, you know, I I do not hold it against anybody who was more of a COVID hawk at the beginning because there was so much we didn't know and we didn't know the, how effective the NPIs were or even how dangerous COVID would be. Um, but then as the evidence came mm-hmm. in that the NPIs and that's non-pharmaceutical interventions that means mm-hmm. everything besides vaccines, so mm-hmm. like shutdowns, uh, mask mandates, everything else. Um, as a- I, antivirals, we count also. Uh, as pharmaceutical, that's pharmaceutical. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, um, as the evidence came in that there was no strong relationship between these, the, you know, these policy choices and outcomes, and as the vaccine got risk that you know down significantly by you know orders of magnitude, um, you know, I just I, I started to think not only have we overreacted, but this is you know the biggest policy disaster of my lifetime, and yeah, I've become just you know very uh, you know just just very sort of it's really shaped my politics in sort of a profound way because I've just been shocked that we're still doing you know things like mask mandates for children. Hmm. So many people blame China for failing to properly contain COVID. I blame China for making draconian <laughs> draconian policies popular in the West. Yeah, who is right? So as far as um, uh, China not controlling COVID or not being honest, I mean Philippe uh, Lemoine uh, again, I'll reference him. He had a four 
four-part series in Colette, which I think really takes us down. So it takes uh, takes this narrative apart. But the uh, but the, I, I think you make a good point in that if that had this had not started in China, would we have gone to lockdowns? Mm-hmm. Because we saw what China did, and it made what we did in the West seem like not even that extreme. Um, if this had started in Mexico, and this just disease was everywhere, would we have done that? And I think probably not. I mean, we mm-hmm. needed that sort of that example of um, mm-hmm. somebody else doing something. And um, yeah, I think you're right. I, we can blame China for that. But if, if our government yes. was as competent as China, mm-hmm. they would, you know, they had a, they had a few months, um, they had a you know a few months warning, and you know we, we let mm-hmm. it get out of control. So <laughs> yeah, if mm-hmm. everyone was like China got down to zero COVID, it would have been solved. But yeah, blame them for giving us bad ideas about what we should do given our capabilities. All right. Uh, next question. What do you really think about immigration, Richard and Enya? Um, you know, I think immigration is um, generally, uh, you know, it's a, um, it's a, it's it's a positive for the United States. I mean, I, I think that when you walk around, um, you know, I think immigrants tend to, um, you know, immigrants tend to tend to participate in the real economy. And I think some people like, uh, I think Milton Friedman was in favor of illegal immigration because, you know, they didn't have to suffer from uh, like uh, minimum wage laws and, you know, other kinds of government regulations were mostly harmful. Mm-hmm. But you see like immigrants like, t- you know, tend to start businesses. Um, they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they have a disproportionate share of pens. Even the low-skilled immigration, like, yeah, listen, if you have children, you don't want to hire an American nanny. Okay. An American who's working as a nanny, you know, there, there's often, you know, there's, there's often, um, you know, they're, they're, let's just say you, you would be less comfortable leaving your children around them, uh, which you're leaving your children with them than, than a foreigner. So, yeah, I think a lot of the anti-immigration people are like, oh, you know, it's, uh, you know, they believe in like family formation and stuff. Actually, I think, you know, <laughs> I think that mm-hmm. immigrants are actually, you know, good for that. So I, you know, I don't know if I go as far as far as you, but I, I generally have a positive it's, view it, of immigration. Yes. Uh, in case you haven't heard, I do have a book called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. So, uh, of course, if it did not be as extreme as me, it was not saying all no, that much because almost no yeah. one's as extreme <laughs> as me. All right. Uh, what are your top complaints about the American left? Uh, I mean, the, the top complaints. Top complaints is Just the, let it all out, Richard. I think we've gone into it. I Give mean, them they, hell, Richard. <laughs> so the COVID restrictions. I, I, I tell you, I'm basically like a you know a one issue person, voter slash uh, citizen mm-hmm. at this point. I think we need to you know, we need to show our faces. I I don't care about anything else really at this point. Um, uh, so yes, the the hysteria. I mean, I and yeah, the wokeness. I mm-hmm. mean, that's something you know that's uh, I've elaborated on already. Um, uh, you know the, the the anti-market stuff too. I guess I guess mm-hmm. the, what else is the left from the left? <laughs> I guess that's what's most things. <laughs> All right. Now, what are your top complaints about the American right? Um, you know, I, I think you know the foreign policy is probably the the worst thing. I, I don't think they have uh, you know an intellectual vision to push back on the right. I think they've been sort of um, I think they've been irresponsible in sort of the anti-vaccine rhetoric. And they'll say not anti-vaccine, anti-mandates. But look, if you just focus on one mandate for one thing all the time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, that's a pretty you know you're sending a message and you're doing it pretty uh, uh, pretty openly. Um, and you know, often I'm. Uh, you know, often I am, uh, even if I agree with the right, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the way sort of right-wingers argue is often just, you know, it reflects their, uh, the, it, it just so clearly reflects the fact that they're driven by antagonism. You look at mm-hmm. the headlines out of conservative site, mm-hmm. ha Biden did this, Fauci did this, mm-hmm. hey, this is my article, you know, liberals mm-hmm. read conservatives, watch TV, just the extent to which it's personalized. And, and mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, for good reason. I like, I, you know, I have many problems with the mm-hmm. left, um, but doesn't mean, you know, any reaction to that is, is healthy. 
Yeah, so the right is not very strong on having any concrete solution for anything they're complaining about. It's more of just saying, yeah. look at how terrible they are. All right, my job's done. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, that's like the foreign policy thing. Oh, Putin, she, bad, right? That's all That's all you need to know. But although there there are, you know, people who are thinking about this. So Chris Rufo is, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. this and doing mm-hmm. things. And then there was, uh, I was encouraged to see in City Journal um, some sort of responses to my, um, and building upon my article, well, Constitutions is Just Civil Rights Law by Charles Lehman mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, another one by Gabe Rossman. So, um, you know, there are people thinking about that and the extent to which they, they do more of that, you know, the better. Yeah, Joe, or just another example. So I've been pushing the idea of a free, free speech exception to discrimination law such that it is, you are not allowed to present any evidence on any political or comments or jokes that a person gave on the job. Yeah. Right. And that's just barred from any case. And if you can't make a case without talking about jokes, then you don't have a case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So the, I mean, the, the federal government is in the business of regulating humor. I mean, that's what you're, that's what yeah. you're getting at. And at least, you know, it seems like an easy political sell to say that they shouldn't be doing that. All right. Uh, how strong is left wing bias in K through 12? Really? Um, I, you know, I, I, so I, I think back to like my own uh, experience. And we talked a lot about, you know, civil rights. We talked a lot about, you know, uh, historical racism. And I, you know, I, it's like, I don't even remember much from actually elementary school. Like I can't even remember if it was a left wing bias or, or a right wing bias. And you um, think it's very different now or you think it's probably the same? I mean, hopefully I mean, the optimistic case people aren't even paying attention and they're not mm-hmm. digesting anything. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe like maybe they overreached with this recent stuff and that's mm-hmm. why you get the critical race theory bands because they made it so obvious. Like nobody can mm-hmm. miss, you know what mm-hmm. they're doing. Um, but no, I, th- I think that, you know, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I was, uh, I tweeted about the other day, the, the cars, movies. Have you mm-hmm. seen the Cars movies? I saw the first one. Okay. So basically the car, the Cars movies, the, the lesson of the uh, first one is basically, um, you know, uh, neoliberalism is basically bad, right? Because you have this, uh, that you have this oh, yeah, the left, sponsored car. Uh, yes. You have the, uh, well, you have the, uh, the left behind sort of air radiator space. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That's and then right. I won't give away the, um, like the uh, spoilers. I think for yeah. those who used to want to watch a Cars movie, but Cars 2 is about global warming basically. <laughs> and Cars 3 brings in a girl and has her overcome something, right? Um, so, and so I think like, if you look at the Cars movie, I think you're sort of, that's like the, I think you're just like looking at children's movies and you're looking at sort of what is the normie narrative of like what good people are supposed to believe, right? Mm-hmm. And it reflects different, like there's 2006 and a 2011 version and like a 2060, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. the Cars movies are released. I'm just thinking about Cars movies because I just recently watched them. Um, <laughs> but maybe I'm putting They're too much on everyone's mind. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think, yeah, I think that's the, like, you know, the, most people don't, Think market. I mean, most people don't think markets are good, and well, you know, it's like it's really not like I don't think this is like. um, Like I think I don't think it's like impossible to like convince people like on a technical basis that like something that intuitively Mm -hmm. seems bad might actually be good. Like getting in a plane is intuitively very scary, but like we teach people that it's like okay, and you're probably going to be fine. Um, So I think the anti-market bias, you know, could be uh, done away with. But to me, like a neutral understanding of politics would mean saying, look, markets are really, really great. To me, that's the Mm -hmm. accurate understanding of human history, and they definitely don't get that. So yeah, there's a bad left-wing bias. So how strong is left-wing bias in the typical state? University in America, I you know pretty I mean pretty bad I mean the you know there's so a are, lot worse than K twelve 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have entire fields that are sort of, you know, anti, you know, empirical and un- unfalsifiable. I mean, women's studies, uh, African-American studies, um, you know, certain, even we have even uh, like a race, ethnicity and politics subfield within political science. And it's, you know, you could look at the, uh, uh, you know, you could look at, you could just look up, you know, papers in this field. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And even the people who are like, not obviously crazy on this face are doing stuff like drawing democracy charts where whenever there's a right wing government, you know, it's falling, you mm-hmm. know, the it's collapsing. So it, it, it's pretty bad, unquestionably. All right. How strongest left-wing bias in top universities? Uh, you know, it's the same. I mean, a lot of these same, people... So, same, not worse. Um, no, no, it's worse. It's worse. Yeah. So like your typical state school... Um, yeah, I mean, I've you know, my experience has been um, just being around a few campuses. And uh, so you see, uh, you know, like definitely... Um, the most left-wing campus I was on, probably UCLA and CU Boulder, U Chicago less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it depends on the elite school. Like I think Princeton and U Chicago are, are better than the uh, typical state school. And then something like... Uh, you consider Princeton better than typical state school? Well, from what I've heard, I've never been okay. to Princeton. I don't know much. But from what I've heard, and I've, I've seen survey data that they're more Republican than others. You know, I don't know. I'm just making things up basically out of Princeton. I know, I know, I know Chicago <laughs> better. Um, and uh, so yeah, I, Chicago at least is, is better, at least was when I was there um, and then you know uh, something you know like the all girls liberal arts colleges northeast <laughs> are probably the most extreme end of uh, that yeah we actually have uh, data on this that yeah it's uh, it's uh, there are there are ones where you know it's it's ninety nine percent would consider them on the, on the left we have mm-hmm. fine grained data at CSPI that we're that we're gonna mm-hmm. uh, go through soon um, and yeah you'll you'll see the northeast liberal arts uh, female schools are the worst uh, the worst for the, in terms of political bias mm-hmm. so top universities endowments have skyrocketed during COVID does this mean we should expect them to stay on their current ideological trajectory for decades to come. So what, I mean, what are the details of the, are the endowment because the stock market has yeah. been doing well? Yeah. So the main universities that I know of at least at minimum stayed in the market the whole time and then realized immense capital gains. Uh-huh. And I think some of the better ones might've actually even market time successfully. Uh-huh. So they're just, yeah, they're just uh, basically, yeah. they, I mean, people say about Harvard, it's basically a hedge fund with like a university attached yes, to it. that's right. And the, the endowments are absolutely yes. large. Yeah, so I, it's, it, I mean, there's so much, you know, yeah, so Harvard, much. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, I mean, Harvard could have easily you know, gained another 10 billion off of this. Yeah. Thing. And, uh, yeah, so you have, yeah. And so, so there's, you know, they're sort of, they're, they're self-financing it, but they're self-financing based on government money because of the aid and the student Mm -hmm, loans mm -hmm. and the grants and, you know, Mm -hmm. everything else. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, it seems, it seems, I don't see anything that's going to necessarily on the horizon that will knock them off the path that they're on now. And it seems like it's been getting more extreme in the last year or two. You know, there are more attacks on like, uh, standardized tests and things like that. You know, the one, like the one or the one objective thing that's left in the admissions mm-hmm. process. Um, so yeah, it's by all indications, things are getting, going to get worse. All right, you practically started answering my next question. Uh, most top schools seem like they're going to be test optional from now on. How much and how soon will this damage the value of the signal of a degree from a top school? Yeah, when do people start saying Harvard? They let in. They you know, like their students are dummies. You know, it depends on the um, it, the sort of the implementation will be very interesting. So mm-hmm. it will be optional. If you're a you know a white male um, with a high test score, I'm guessing you should probably um, you still probably send it in ten years to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a um, black female liberal activist and you have low SATs, you probably mm-hmm. don't want to show them the SATs mm-hmm. and you want to show them the other things. Mm-hmm. So I think you're I think you're going to get more. 
uh, selection for left wing activism, but I still think the median student might still be pretty close because you know they'll have you know fifty percent will send mm-hmm. in their SATs and they'll be mm-hmm. they might even be higher on average than than before just because fewer are submitting them. Um, and so the signal might still work, but then you'd have to apply, I guess, more statistical discrimination against the groups uh, mm-hmm. getting affirmative action. Um, so the the implementation is is going to be very interesting, and I guess the question is how you know how much of a, it how much is it you know how much do like objective market you know forces are you know based on you know signals of productivity and how much are employers just you know being conformist and you know mm-hmm. complying with civil rights law and you know ha- having other behavior that doesn't really make perfect sense from like you know a grand you know perspective of economic efficiency um it's it's a complicated question it's well, it's going to mm-hmm. be interesting to find out yeah i'll confess i was completely shocked by how this test optional thing played out when i first heard about it my reaction was this will get them a lot more applications than then then they'll assume the worst of everyone who didn't have test scores and reject them yeah. And actually, top schools, a large percentage, 40, 50% of the students they took didn't actually send in their test scores. Yeah. So, like, all right, man, so you actually believe this stuff. <laughs> it's not just that you're pretending to have lower standards in order to go and get more applications in order to raise your U.S. News and World Report ranking, yeah. which is a classic bait and switch from top yeah. schools. So, pretty surprising. All right, last question. Do any of your inherited identities matter to you at all? And if so, which ones and why? Uh, not really. I mean, I'm a Middle Eastern Christian. I'm not, you know, particularly enamored by Middle East politics. People often ask my opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I have no particular, you know, emotional attachment to, you know, either side or that conflict at all. Um, and then, you know, I guess the other uh, identity would be American. And, like, I have a very, like, you know, I, it's very funny because, like, I have these petty preferences that, like, where the American identity comes out strong. But then, like, on big questions, like, is the American system superior to other systems. I'm like skeptical, but then it's like, is football better than soccer? And like, and then I come, like, yes. Whoever likes soccer is a weirdo and a wimp, and whoever likes football is a real man and psychologically healthy. So it comes out in sort of strange ways. But yeah, I mean, that's uh, yeah, not, 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 not so much for like political or more serious issues. All right, this has been a fascinating, <laughs> thrilling interview with Richard Nenya. And uh, I guess last question is, where can everyone who is dying to find out more of what you have to say hear about it? Yeah, out of, um, to make it easy for people to find me, or maybe out of laziness, my Twitter handle is just Richard Hanania, and my substack is just richardhanania.substack.com, so you know, find me there. All right, this is Brian Kaplan signing off from the Salem Center at the University of Texas in here in beautiful and in the beautiful and free air of Austin. Looks like you got one last thing you yeah, want to say. Okay. I should have, I should have oh. said also uh, CSPI, CSPICenter.org, Center for Study of Partnership Ideology, and then CSPI.substack.com on our mailing list. You'll get not just my work, but everyone else's work involved with it. Oh, last question. Uh, there's a rumor that you're thinking of moving to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment? No comment for now. All right. Thank you very much, Richard. And uh, signing off. Thank you, Salem Center listeners. Goodbye. Thank you.